Tuesday. No, it's not. It's Monday. It is Monday. November 2nd, 2020. I guess I said it was Tuesday because I was thinking of broadcasting this on Tuesday. Publishing it on Tuesday. But uh, starting now. Which I think I may do. So this portion of the episode might be before the election. And then the second half maybe after the election. So we'll just see how that goes. But this will be kind of interesting. So right now it is November 2nd. Monday, November 2nd. Before the election. And as always, you are listening to Sam Walking in the World. This is episode 30. This is the fastest growing podcast on all of Noel Top Terrace. And as always, the thoughts of a guy who used to be unhappy, just trying to live like he wants to be when he dies. Guten Tag. Kia ora, ni hao, top of the morning, and a big fat hello to all my devoted listeners throughout four continents and both hemispheres. I'm very grateful to all of you. I mean that sincerely. As always, and I'm thrilled to hear you listening to the sound of my voice. Now, I am in a silly mood today. I don't know if it's related to my feeling of confidence in Donald Trump winning the election. Um, I don't even know if it's confidence. It's just a feeling based on things I've seen and heard and felt. And it's like um, one of those things where it almost doesn't matter if you want it to happen or don't want it to happen. You just have a gut feeling that it's going to happen. Kind of the way like Michael Jordan would be down by eight with like 35 seconds to go in the game and you just kind of knew he was going to find a way to make the Bulls win. And then it would happen. And it happened enough times that you would be like, I just have a feeling this is going to happen. I don't. I love watching Michael Jordan play, but I wouldn't say I was always rooting for him. But it was just amazing. It would just, it would just happen. I could feel it in my gut. I kind of feel like that now. <clears throat> I don't know if my silly feeling was related to that. I'm just in a silly mood sometimes, right around this time. And so I was just thinking of a couple of funny things. I actually thought of a joke. When I first wake up, words go through my mind. All right, I'll share something um, intimate with you. When I first wake up, I'm, I'm almost never in a good mood. I don't know if it's that I wish I could continue sleeping. Because you do go through that gray area where it could go either way. And there's still a pull toward wanting to sleep and rest and have your brain still be off. But you also want to get up. There's a part of you that wants to become interested in whatever the first thing is that takes your interest that day. And many times, <clears throat> I, mean, I like what's coming in my day. Like I, I, I look forward to the things that I eventually do, and I end up liking them much more once I begin doing them. Um, but that very first thought you have, if you have a, a, a thing that is a constant worry in your life, and I, for a time I had this, it had to do with the job I was doing and whether or not I wanted to keep it or change to a new job, which I did to my job that I have now. But while I was in that position of flux, that was always my first thought. And I'm sure if you have an illness of some kind or, you know, some kind of uncertain prognosis or just a thing that you know you're going to have to do in a week and you hate when you do that, like going to the dentist or something, if you really worry about it that much. Which really is not something to worry about that much. Dentistry is, <clears throat> has become very, very painless. But still, some people have a thing. 
Um, like my blood pressure goes up when I get my blood pressure taken. They call that, I think, white coat syndrome. Yeah, white coat syndrome. And so <clears throat> I, I try never to wear a white coat when I go. And apparently it works because my temperature has come down a little bit when I'm wearing the white coat. Anyway, um, so as you can see, I'm in a silly mood. But the first thing that usually comes into my mind when I begin my day is some kind of language. Some I'll hear something and it'll associate to something funny in my head and I'll twist the words in a way that make me laugh. Like really laugh. Like I'll belly laugh. My wife will think I'm crazy. Um, but I don't care. She's probably right. Um, let's be honest. But anyway, I thought of this. <laughs> a joke came to my mind because um, of my dog. And my wife is always worried about the dog running away because she doesn't have the radio collar on that will zap her. And she just loves the dog so much she doesn't want to see her get hit by a truck or a you know, FedEx truck or something like that. But I don't think that would ever happen. My dog, despite her urge to run across the street at a deer or something like that, I think she's really smart. Anyway, I was thinking about my dog and I wrote this joke. My dyslexic friends... Dog ran away. I have a friend who's dyslexic. His dog ran away and has still not yet returned. And the sad thing is he can't even pray for its safe return because now he thinks there's no God. <laughs> uh, and I, this also was very funny to me. I was thinking about it when I first woke up because it happened to me yesterday. I was um, at someone's house and they have a, it's this woman, and she has a Bosnian nephew. It just She's Bosnian too. She's someone that I often swim with. And she was giving me cookies. And, I mean, I don't swim with her. Like, we tend to be in the pool at the same time, sometime on Saturdays, and we got to know each other. And they're just really strongly Bosnian. She's an older woman. <clears throat> I think she moved here at some point in her middle age. So she's been here a while, but she still has that really thick Bosnian accent. And her nephew moved here. And her nephew is like, I don't know, in his probably early 20s. And he loves America. And it's, it strikes me. It's, it always strikes me when sometimes the people who feel like it's the most okay to say how happy they are to be American are brand new ones. Like they haven't yet Americanized it's funny, like, I'll know he's fully Americanized when he feels like he's supposed to say he's not proud to be American. Like, that's how you know you've been fully Americanized, when, when you have to worry about who you say that to. You, you don't use the word patriot too much because you don't want people to think that you're, you know, because that typically associates you with the right wing. I don't know why. I think purely when you say you're an American and you love America, it usually it associated is it should be associated with the freedoms that go along with being American, the Constitution itself. It's a it's a protector to of all from the government. A lot of people think the Constitution is a list of stuff the government will do for you. It's not. It's a wall. That prevents everything that the government wants to do from being able to be done. That's why we are the people. Anyway, um, he is Americanizing, and he just loves America. So, like, and because of social media now, he has watched 
you know, he's, he's communicated with people. He's seen YouTube videos. He's watched lots of American movies. I'm sure he, he did this before he came here from Bosnia. Um, but it just, it reminds me of that show, Perfect Strangers, where Belki, um, the guy with the black hair, he, he's been in, I think he's been in a bunch of movies. Um, I can't think of his name right now. But his name was Belki on the show. And he had just come from whatever, Sylvania. And his American brother was was trying to help him become more American. It was actually a pretty funny show. That guy is pretty funny. I think he had a small part in like the the um, Eddie Murphy movies there. Uh, a Beverly Hills Cop. I think he was the guy that worked at the art gallery. And he wanted to offer him uh, uh, espresso, cappuccino with a little lemon twist. You should try it. It's good. He tells the guy that's working for him to button up the top of his shirt because it's not sexy. It's animal. As if for the customer to come and scrub, cover up. It's not sexy, Donnie. That guy. And this guy reminds me of that. And it's he used a, an American expression <laughs> in a way that shows he's not quite there yet, but you can tell he's got all the all the vigor of a, of a person who wants to be American. And he was talking about how he had a job in Bosnia. And um, he hated it. It was like lifting cinder blocks or something, moving construction stuff. And his boss was mean, and he wasn't happy there. And he's like, everything was gray, and and uh, the weather was awful. And he um, and his wife, he, he kept, I mean, not his wife, his boss, he kept on saying, I'm going to go to America, I'm going to go to America. But he couldn't get a job here or something, or his living situation hadn't been worked out, and they finally figured it out. I'm not sure if he's got his own apartment or if he's living with his aunt whom I know, but he, the day he did get his job and everything got settled and he knew for a fact that he was moving to America, he said, he said, uh, I, the day that I found out that, uh, I'll be coming to America, I go to my, my boss and I say, I say to my boss, I say, now I am going to America and I quit this job. How are you enjoying the taste of these apples? <laughs> How are you enjoying the taste of these apples? I was like, oh my God, he must have seen Goodwill Hunting. Ah, oh, I have you laughing. Those are my two thoughts first thing this morning. And I, you know what? I thought I meant this. I have an urge inside to behave immaturely. I don't, it got me thinking about maturity. I don't, um, so, and it's true. I, I think it's, it's, I guess you could call it a flaw. Um, or a deep character defect is that I don't, I, I, I'll see myself in the mirror and go, wow, you're a practically 50 year old guy. But in my mind, I don't feel like that. I feel like the same person who thought weird things when I was in middle school in my head, but I have a house and a wife and, uh, and, um, a job and I pay taxes and <laughs> you know, I'm a, I'm a 50 year old man, but there's still that part inside me that not just doesn't go away. It also continues to identify me. And so sometimes it'll draw me toward immaturity. And, and it's like, I, it helps me understand seventh and eighth graders much better. I, I, I take a lot less stuff so rigidly, so personally. I recognize that's, that's, that's the inclination. It doesn't make sense. That's an inclination that they have to do something, right? To, to, flat, to fart in class. You know, as an adult, you're like, that is rude. You should excuse yourself in it. But like a 7th and 8th grader, no way. That's the thing you do. The louder, the better. 
anyway, um, I just got, it got me thinking about what it means to be mature. And I feel like I know what it means to be immature. And I think it's, it's very close, I think, to being insecure. Like immature adults seem like to me like they're insecure. And I think that leads to behaviors like attention seeking, showing off, offending people intentionally. I've done that. Um, the inability sometimes to take responsibility. That's where it really hits you, where it hurts if you do that. You can keep your, the child alive inside you, but you can't let him convince you to not take responsibility for things. Like you shouldn't throw stuff out your window in the car, which I don't do. But anyway, I, I, I try actively to not do these things. I mean, it's hard to say I'm not attention-seeking. I'm, I'm talking on a podcast that I broadcast right now. But at least I'm being honest. And um, someone told me this piece of advice once, or I read it in a book. It might have even been like a self-help book or something, one of those. But it was my impulse My impulse is toward blue humor. And, and I feel like just maybe there's this urge to lighten things up sometimes when they get really serious because there's no point in worrying about worrying about anything that much to the point where it consumes you but in in arguments with people or discussions or disagreements with people this someone told me this quote it's it says there is one graceful way to be right but thousands of ways to be wrong and in order to be to do things the right way it takes an, uh, an attentiveness, almost to the point of an action. Inaction tends to lead to those thousands of other ways of being wrong. So if you don't have an awareness that an action, at least a psychological action, has to be taken in your mind to do the right thing, and you're just letting yourself do whatever are the things that happen to be what you do, you probably aren't aware of it, but you're probably offending people or showing off, or attention-seeking. and I know when I do it, and it was just because I, I let myself relax enough to the point where I wasn't actively trying to be mature. And even even when things are funny, you know, I, I can create funny things and laugh at them myself, and then know when not to. But, so, I don't even know why I decided to discuss that. And I want to say a few things about dogs before I get to the heavy stuff. Um, first is this, the mess that I see when I look around the floor of Man Cave Studios, which is now my name for the basement of my house, Man Cave Studios, um, I look around the floor and I see this mess, it's like splinters of sticks and branches, I'm not, like a half-chewed, right now I'm looking at a half-chewed soda cap from a Diet Mountain Dew plastic bottle. I see pieces of bone from bones unfinished. There's a couple of major stains on the carpet that my wife and I just can't figure out either where they came from or how to get them out. We, we're pretty sure they're dog related. And when I think of all that, <clears throat> like a torn slipper, my flip-flops, my dog owns everything four feet and down. Everything above four feet, I give a reasonable expectation, will remain in its current condition. But the dog literally will find anything. Smell every corner. Look everywhere. And anything that's of interest, 
to them in terms of smell or taste or texture. They want to pull on it. It's hers. My brother's got a puppy now, Stanley, who is um, a similar breed. It's a Labradoodle, and it does look a lot more like a Golden Doodle. I think it might even be a Golden Doodle. But it's a beautiful dog. But it's only some months old, and and there, my, my brother has expressed concern about it getting things in its mouth, chewing on things, ruining things. And I think he's almost to where he's going to surrender the, the bottom four feet of everything in his house and make an adjustment. And that will take a lot of pressure off of worrying. I've already made that leap in my mind. So as I look around this giant mess, I think to myself, um, if I had to keep the mess in order to keep the dog, like if I could completely get rid of this mess, but it would mean I would also have to get rid of the dog, which would necessitate getting rid of the dog if I didn't want the mess. There's no way to stop it. Um, I look at the dog. Like I look around the floor and I'll see all the crap and whatever that rising feeling of, of uh, it's just not orderly is that comes up out of me, I'll eventually pan my vision over to where the dog is laying down on the couch as she is right now. And I think to myself, there's no way, there's no way I would get rid of that dog in order to have a cleaner basement. And not only does it, <clears throat> not only does it make it um, worthwhile to have the mess, it makes the 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 sorry, it makes the mess less worrisome. Like I've just accepted it now; it doesn't even bother me as a mess. It kind of is just what is, but the dog is. So any of you dog owners out there, puppy owners who haven't made the leap yet to turning over the bottom four feet of everything in your house, uh, I recommend you do it. Unless you don't like your dog that much, in which case get rid of the dog. Moving on, <clears throat> another thing about dogs. Am I the only one that thinks it's strange that although dog collars are an object of restriction, like they're used to restrict the freedom of dogs. They seem to love them. Sadie is obsessed with her collar. She loves it. She loves smelling it. She wants to be around her collar. Like when I wrap it a couple times around my wrist, she will not leave me alone. And it got me thinking. You could practically walk your dog with its collar but not on it on the dog. You can just kind of have it the way you would dangle a carrot. But you don't even need to do that. You just have to have it on your person. It could even be in your pocket. The smelling is so good. And anytime the dog started to roam, you can pull the collar out of your pocket and just dangle it, and the dog will come back. But it would be confusing because if someone asked you how you keep the dog from running off and you said, I use a collar, they'd say, oh, like a leash. And you say, no, just a collar. I'm like, but your dog's not wearing a collar. No, no, she's not. And then you could continue walking, leaving them in confusion. Okay, I think I got most of my immaturity out there, but you never know. So um, I will be, uh, I'll take a short break. And then when I get back, um, I have some lifey stuff before I get to the politics and all that. But again, this has been um, recorded before the election. And so I'm going to say a few pre-election things. And I'm 
<clears throat> I'm going to be bold enough to make my, my prediction, which you know is I believe that Trump is going to go in. Um, in a larger, to a larger degree than other, than people expect. Certainly to a larger degree than any of the major liberal networks. And you know they are, I think. But I'll get to all that and more just after Milky gives you his two cents. Welcome back to Sam Walking in the World, episode 30. It is a pleasure to be back. Um, I was trying to decide which I sh which thing I should talk about next. Um, and again, this is uh, recorded pre-election results. It is Monday, November 2nd. So I'm going to talk a little bit about that stuff first. Like I said, I'm a, I'm a confident believer that Trump is going to win. Now, obviously, I want him to win because I agree with the policies that will be implemented. Um, it has less to do with the man. If it's personal in any way to me, it's an animus that I have toward a, an outright dishonest media. I disagree with the politics, a lot of the politics of the left, quote-unquote, and I can spell them out for you. Um, I kind of have and am and will, but... Um, if it's personal in any way, I want to see the faces of the people that have been propagating nonsense on MSNBC, CNN, NBC, ABC, CBS, Washington Post, and the New York Times. Um, and many others. I just want to watch MSNBC for a whole day after he wins. It is a hope, I guess. So that part of it is a hope. I hope he wins because I get to do that. I don't think any major damage will be done to my life if he doesn't win. Like I said, financially, I'm insulated. I work for a, um, a health services company that's that's um, funded by the government, essentially. It's Medicaid. And I work at a school. So, I mean, if I were going by my own pure monetary interests, I would probably want Joe Biden to win because higher taxes in the economy don't really affect me. I don't run a business. And in a sense, I, I feel like I have the responsibility to put myself in the shoes of somebody who does. Somebody who owns a barbershop or um, smaller businesses like a pizza shop. But even bigger businesses, you know, regional area businesses like construction supply and, you know, large supermarket chains. I, I, I want them to do well. And, and, and I think it really does create more jobs in a way that the government can't. Government jobs are never real. They're supposed, like, it, I mean, I'm, I have a government job. Actually, no, I don't. I work for a private school now. Ha! I used to have a government job, with the exception of the other job that I have. But people in government unions um, really are not, they're, they themselves are, are protected in a way from the economy because of the union contracts that they make. But the average person out there who's in the private sector um, depends on the vitality of the economy. And somebody who's going to stamp on it and trap, you know, crush it, even hinder it, to try and suggest that the government can do the job of benefiting these people's lives more than free and fair commerce can, I think is just a philosophical, ideological thing that I believe that separates me from people who don't believe it. 
Boy, that was a long-winded way of saying I want Donald Trump to win. But um, I also feel like he's going to, like I said last segment. I, f- I just feel it. And so um, this, uh, let me run you through, and it's been probably since, I want to say, the Clinton elections. I voted for Clinton when I was in college, just just out of college. Um, and then I gradually, you know, I think Rush Limbaugh really flipped me. But he didn't brainwash me. He exposed me to these ideas. And then I looked at the world around me through another lens. And I thought, wow, as much as I didn't want what he said to be true, because I really didn't. I, I listened at first as a hater of him. And then gradually it was just the ideas. And I saw I, I lived more of my own real life in the world. And, you know, that's why that old saying is if you're not a Democrat before you're 30, you don't have a heart. If you're not a Republican after 30, you don't have a brain. Not that I think that anyone who's not a Republican doesn't have a brain. Don't get me wrong. But just the idea that once you start living in the real world, making your own check, having your own house, having your own kids, the ideas of the you know conservatives tend to make more sense you just feel i just feel like that's it and it's the same way i feel like the like like trump is going to win but here is here is typically what happens um it seems like every single election season since i kind of came to believe of myself as a conservative and as the cable networks grew i mean all the way even back to 2000 during the the you know hanging chads in florida Bush versus Gore, um, I started to watch the evolution of the networks. And for a while, MSNBC did have some conservative viewpoints. Like I said before, I think Joe Scarborough might have had a show on MSNBC that was conservative. Um, And it was popular. It was called Scarborough Country. And they had a lot of just competing voices. There were people that covered... um, John Gibson is somebody, I think. I actually think I called into John Gibson's show once. Um, on the Clinton impeachment thing, and um, and that was on MSNBC, and he was he was if not out now conservative, certainly wasn't liberal. But you can't find that anywhere now, anywhere. And it's true that they 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 became kind of polarized when Fox did pretty much exclusively conservative leaning content, but they do allow the other uh, um, viewpoint. You get to see it at least enunciated. And then argued against by three times as many people. But nevertheless, it, it does. Because I know people who are so conservative that it even irks them that there'll be people like Juan Williams or Jessica Tarloff or, you know, the other left-leaning Chris Hahn. Um, the people that do argue full-throated left-ish um, philosophy. And so, anyway, when it started to polarize, and I started to notice CNN, CNN used to be in the center. They still consider themselves to be be in the center, but that's because they picked the whole spectrum up and moved it. Um, But they are not in the center. And and MSNBC is far left. But this is the process that the anchors, let's just say MSNBC. It also happens on social media. Like the Young Turks is a, a very liberal... Um, I don't know if it's a podcast or a website or what, but it's a very liberal-leaning 
news opinion outlet. The way Ben Shapiro is, and um, The Wire, I think his publication is called, on the left. Um, I like watching the people on the left, especially people that consider themselves journalists. They're reporting the news to us, like the anchors that you see on MSNBC during the day, or even NBC and, and ABC and CBS at night. The major faces that you know, like Brian Williams. But watching them cover the election night in 2016, and I wasn't as as strong a supporter of, of you know, I wasn't as conservative, at least knowingly. So I wasn't, um, you know, a, a great rooter for Trump during that election, but it amazed me to watch this dynamic that occurs. And it's it just seems to occur again and again. And this is it. And this is most often visible, most clearly visible, when when there is a Republican election victory, which happens just as much as liberal ones. But they're, but they're still locked in this mode, when, and it, it comes out hard when, the, when a Republican wins, like it did when Trump won in 2016. And that is this. First, MSNBC will create, because their news group does create polls. It also cites polls. So it'll, it'll create and cite polls that are friendly to the candidate that they want to win. In many cases, the polls are biased because of the sampling of the number of Republicans or Democrats that they do. And um, this this is the same way they ended up with all of these polls that said Hillary Clinton was going to win for sure, running away, 9 points, 12 points. You know, Trump didn't have a chance. And they were covering it as though it was Hillary Pres- President Hillary Eve. That's how they covered the election. And right now they're covering it, covering it as Biden, President Biden Eve. And President Biden Day will be election day. And when that narrative is interrupted, it's like, I swear, their faces slide off of their heads. And this is the, the, the order of the steps in the dynamic. It starts off, and they, they have these polls that they are very confident in. And all of these polls assure us that the Democrats are going to win the presidency. In this case, it's Biden. And they just keep on saying how far ahead, how far ahead. It amazes me when someone talks about how far ahead somebody is when they're referring to a poll. Like in my mind, nobody's ahead or behind until there are votes. How are you ahead or behind in, in an idea of a sample of what some people think? It's so pliable, unlike a number of votes. And so, but but the, the Democrat is always ahead going into the election. And so the media people, both the opinion people and the quote-unquote news people, they believe the polls themselves. So in many cases, they've participated in biasing the polls, but they believe them themselves, and they take comfort in them. You can see a comfort level that they have with the election approaching and them obviously believing these polls. And, And... and even the, the aspect of the 2016 election where Trump voters ended up coming out in, in much greater numbers than polls would have suggested because of this silent majority, you know, the silent Trump voter, who doesn't really want to come out and tell anyone that they're a Trump voter. In 2016, it was, I think, purely because you were vilified. You were all the stuff that they accused Trump of being. You were a racist. 
you're uh, sexist, you're xenophobic, homophobic, uh, stupid, um, selfish, only for the rich. And so everyone that was an ordinary person that was a Trump voter was like, I'm not going to broadcast this. There's a certain way I see the world and a way I want the world to be, but I'm not getting anything but bad stuff if I start signaling to anyone, letting it be known that I'm a Trump supporter. So that created this gigantic swing from the perception the polls created to the reality that existed in the world, in the country. And I watched it and I knew that, that a, lot of the, um, a lot of the reason why the polls were wrong was because of that silence caused by this need to not be ostracized. Now it's not only that, it's also people who, since they know that thing exists, that silent thing that Trump voters do, people are doing it on purpose. Pretty much anything that becomes a thing people know about, more people will do it. And so a lot of Trump voters that would not ordinarily have thought to keep silent are intentionally. Like they want the, 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 the smack in the face to be even stronger to these people. And so, and I honestly, I have to admit, I would like to see that slap be nice and strong and leave a big red hand mark. I don't, I don't purport, I mean, I don't, um, what is it, advocate any violence. I don't actually mean going around slapping people. I don't mean that I want to see Joe Scarborough slapped in the face physically on television. This is all figurative language I'm using. But I think people keep it to themselves because they want that slap to be even stronger. Even more of a surprise. You turn around and whack. Um, and so they so first they cite the polls, then they believe the polls, then the Republican wins. Trump won. So they had all of this lead up, all this confidence, all this um, comfort. And in one day, because because the lead up is long, 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 long time of election season. I mean, it went on for months. And and then all of a sudden, in one day, these people have to sit there behind their desk looking at the camera and announce that their network or cable cable news network has just called this or that state for Trump. We're getting this in now. We, we, we haven't called it yet. So other other uh, outlets have called it. We haven't called it yet. We're waiting for this county or that county. And then like about five minutes later, they'll be like, we have to announce that. Oh, God, how can I say this? Ah, the state of North Carolina has been won by Donald Trump. And it's like, I almost feel bad for them. But I don't. Just think you you did this to yourself, man. Or woman. And then they have to make sense of it. Right? The one that when all the talking heads start talking to each other and giving their reactions to this new real fact. Look, they've all been slapped in the face. So are all like rubbing the side of their face. Some of them have ice on it. Um and Don Lemon is crying. Mika Brzezinski's mascara is all over her face. 
Joe Scarborough looks like he's had a few drinks. And they start talking about why. Why did this happen? Because, well, first of all, they deny that it happened. Right? Before, it's like denial. What do they say? It's, denial is the first thing in the grieving process. So they're in denial first. It didn't happen. Um, they tampered with this. They tampered with that. More votes are going to come in from here. We have to extend this out more days for the mail-in votes to come in. But eventually, the gravity of it ends up settling on them. And they realize this actually happened. And they have to explain it. It can't just be that there are lots of people who support Trump policies. It cannot be that this many Americans, a majority, and that's why they love going to the popular vote. It's not really a legitimate presidency because they didn't win the popular vote. But they really know that has no bearing. I mean, you can't make the guy move out of the White House because he lost the popular vote. And for all these people that say they love the Constitution, now Trump is ruining the Constitution. The Electoral College is an integral part. Anti-majoritarian mechanisms, as I said in my last episode, are incredibly critical. And they were worked into the Constitution for a reason and exist for a reason. And, and so they don't have that that they can really make any difference with by, by bringing up the, the popular vote. So it settles on them, it dawns on them completely that the president will still be the president. Or or when Trump first became the president, Hillary will not be the president. And so in order to explain it, they usually immediately go to these two things. One, America is racist. Trump is racist. Lots of people voted for Trump. Lots of people are racist. America's got a lot of work to do on race. Literally, you'll see it. I promise you'll see it. Remember I said it. And the second thing is, Americans don't know what's good for them. They don't even know what they're voting for, what they're going to get. God, it's like voting for Hitler. They've already done an ad suggesting he's like Hitler. Why would these people think, think that Hitler's a good idea? Now, they don't realize all the, all the interworkings of this idea that they've they've patched together to them it's a nice whole reasonable idea that that we don't know what's good for we're racist and we don't know what's good for ourselves we should be taken care of by somebody else if only we could do away with this this democracy it ends up letting people hurt themselves they have to be protected like a child you wouldn't let a child just go around sticking its finger in light sockets you have, to, you have to grab it. You don't let it walk across the street. And then these people are going to hurt themselves and they don't even know it. So for their own good, we should take that right away. I'm, I'm, I swear to you, I'm not kidding. Whether they're recognizing it or not, that is... And you tell me. Think about it for a second. Is that not the thought process that you see hardcore liberals that lose elections go through? It ends up start because of that and all the work we have to do now to enlighten the people to what is actually the truth and to to do more work on our, our social justice that we have to reach. Apparently, apparently their idea of social justice is not something that's liked by a majority of the people in order to win enough states to win the presidency. 
but we must work on it again. And then they get their nose right back to the grindstone, creating news that creates more polls, that gives them confident, renewed confidence that this that there will never be another Republican ever to win a presidential election. And as the election gets closer, they get closer and closer to the starting line of this exact process and then do it again. Now, I could be completely wrong. I could be completely wrong, but it doesn't feel like it. And so I'm going to take a quick break and gather my thoughts up before I go on to uh, something else that I want to talk about. Um, it actually also has to do with race, but it has to do with this man, Shelby Steele. He's an African-American conservative. He was recently interviewed by Ben Shapiro on his Sunday show. Some of the stuff that he said, because he was a member of the, the, you know, the activist movement in the 60s to gain civil rights in the first place. And he talks about it now having having you know, evolved into a conservative, as he puts it. But um, some very um, insightful points that he made that you may or not may not agree with. So I'll be right back after this message. Hey, this is a man stuck in a boy's body. This podcast is good and unbiased. Um, remember to look at both sides when you vote. That's all I have to say for today. Everybody have a great day. And welcome back to Sam Walking in the World, episode 30, Election Eve edition. Um, I want to make sure that I get this done and out because I want to give it a chance to be um, listened to, I guess, before the election. I want to be on the record completely. And as I've said in, I think, each of the last two episodes, I am confident that Donald Trump is going to continue to be president. And it, it, I do want that, but that isn't why I think it. I think it because I just feel like it. Um, and that may be wrong. I mean, it may be totally wrong. Well, I'll find out whether or not I have any ability at all to feel the pulse of the country. Um, and maybe I don't. But <clears throat> um, before I get to what I wanted to talk about with Shelby Steele. Oh, by the way, that uh, message was brought to you by um, a man in a boy's body. And that was that would be Hayden, um, and I I thank him for that uh, glowing endorsement. I'm not sure how unbiased I am. Um, I don't know. I try to be, but I don't know it's possible to be. If I have a side, I guess then I can't possibly be unbiased. But I try to view each issue, each news event in in an objective way to form my opinion. And I suppose once it's my opinion, it is in fact biased. But Thank you just the same to, to a man in a boy's body. <clears throat> All right. Now, before I get to Shelby Steele um, and his idea about how equality should not be its own end, that's his idea. I'll get more to that, just tease you with that. Um, but I talked about the, the dynamic that occurs in liberal media approaching an election and following an election that is won by a Republican. We saw it in 2016. I believe we're going to see it again. So that was in the previous segment. But before I get to Shelby Steele, I wanted to say this about the polls. Kind of along that along those lines. And that is this. It's almost worth it for the polls being true and Trump losing. In order to have the possibility of the polls and liberal desperation for them to be true turn out to be false. And Trump to win. In those incredibly to liberals 
surprising and disappointing and devastating conditions. Rather than the polls actually predicting a Trump win and then, as predicted, as expected, Trump wins. I think I'd rather have the expectations of liberals and polls of liberals offer great surety to liberals that Biden is going to win, regardless of what happens. But I just have a feeling. Uh, anyway, all right. I'll get on right to what I was planning on talking about next. And that is equality should not be its own end. Think about that. Peace, like just like peace, it should not be, be its own end. If peace means living under subjugation, then peace shouldn't be its own end. Equality is similar to that. It's First of all, it's not achievable. Equality of outcomes. Whenever I'm having this conversation with people on the other side, philosophically, they tend to take equality to mean equality of outcomes. They, I think they suggest that they just mean equality of opportunity, freedom to, to have the same chance to excel as anyone else. Except right there in the word excel, you have to presume that there will be people advancing at different rates to different levels. The freedom if you're going to say they ought to have freedom, then you have to understand that the result of that cause is variation in terms of degrees of success, degrees of wealth, degrees of power, and and there's no way around that. If you pursue equality of outcome, then you have to slow down people who would naturally excel, and you have to boost up people who would naturally um you know, decline or, or, I don't know how to say it, fall behind, I guess. Not reach as high a level in whatever form you're talking about, whether it's money or, um, I don't know, fame, acceptance. So, so I, I just think that delineation is extremely important. And I feel like a lot of times when I'm arguing with somebody, that becomes a gray area. And then all of a sudden, without knowing it, we're talking about equality of opportunity that I'm trying to say shouldn't <clears throat> shouldn't exist. And I don't mean that. So I don't know if any of that mumbo-jumbo made any sense. But Shelby Steele goes into it. And specifically, again, here I go. I'm wading into the dangerous waters of race. But we are told to have an honest conversation. And this is a man I respect very much. He was being interviewed by Ben Shapiro on, on his Sunday special. It might have been last week. So, in short, Shelby Steele talks about how political correctness right now that, that has tended to lead to outcomes that he's criticizing, like censorship and affirmative action um, and, uh, let's say, human resource policies that are adopted in companies, trainings that people have to go through, white privilege, things like that. Now, Shelby Steele is an African-American scholar who himself participated in the 1960s Civil Rights Revolution. He actually marched. He even said once, <clears throat> once he was in an elevator, he was in his early 20s, and he was at the height of the Civil Rights Movement, you know, the challenge, the struggle. And he was in an elevator at a hotel with a white man. 
and he told the white man that he the white man ought to give him $25 because of the the wealth gap because of the discrimination that had occurred against African Americans which it had and and was was happening up until the point where they ended up winning the struggle with the Civil Rights Act of 1963 or 1965 but he asked the man for money and the man gave him more than he asked for and he sought out later in life to try and explain that feeling that causes that white man to give him money when asked. And it's really interesting, I thought. But it, I'll, I'll just kind of go into it little by little. <clears throat> so he was asked a bunch of questions. I won't tell you all the questions he was asked. I'll tell you the gist of what his answers were and what his theory was. So he thinks that all of these these things like censorship, political correctness, affirmative action, all those things. He describes them as the effort of white people to reclaim their innocence after admitting the wrongs of the past. So you are automatically included in the group called white people, whether you currently are treating people you know, in a discriminatory way or not, you're still part of the power structure that was established that allowed you to be in a um, a more fortunate position than blacks. And so we said, again, I'll say it again. It's an effort for white people to reclaim their innocence after admitting the wrongs of the past. Now, remember, this is not my opinion. I'm sharing with you the opinion of Shelby Steele. And he said, to that, to the extent that white people in an effort to reclaim their innocence from their guilt, to the extent that they will redescribe whiteness, in an effort to be forgiven, such as was done, he said, he, he uh, reminded everyone of the Smithsonian art exhibit, which and this is recent. I think it was just over the summer. There's an, uh, an art exhibit in the Smithsonian. Uh, I think it was in the cultural arts department in which whiteness, the definition of whiteness included behaviors like taking personal responsibility for one's own behavior. Like individual accountability, punctuality, politeness, recognizing uh, social cues, extending respect to others. They redefined those as whiteness in order to say, we excuse you from having to do that. You don't have to worry about doing these things because they are white things. And you have no, we, we don't understand because this is just the way we've been doing things. It, it's so full of, of, of presumptions that white people all act that way with those features. And that black people don't have to, as though they don't already. He says all white people have done in search of their innocence is lower expectations for African-Americans, which effectively creates an environment that stunts the growth of African-Americans in the African-American community. It acts as an actual obstacle to their betterment, to the actual lifting up of the culture, if there is a culture. It's it, it, in essence, simply, most simply put, he says it steals the agency from black people. That's a quote from Shelby Steele. 
steals the agency from black people, meaning it takes away their ability to be in charge of their own choices. Because if they are, then they're responsible for the choices they make. So to forgive the choices that they've made, apparently, according to this art exhibit, in order to forgive the choices they've made or excuse them, we say, it's not your fault. You didn't really choose that. It's the system that caused you to have that choice. And as such, that person now loses their agency. Now they're not actually the mover of their own events. I don't think they meant to do that, but that ends up being the result. I, and I agree with him on this. He's as LBJ said, actually said, put your fate in my hands. I will take care of you. That was a promise that he made. And thus began the institutionalized practice of offering essentially what he calls work-free development. To try to help you develop, but you don't really have to do any of the work. It's racist to say you should lift yourself up because we built the structure that makes it difficult or impossible in some cases for you to do that. We will lift you up. It's, it's ridiculous. It's so insulting to African-Americans and to just ordinary white people. And it, it's funny how it, w the way he ended up explaining it is, and it's true, it is exactly the opposite of Martin Luther King Jr.'s dream, to be judged by the content of one's character rather than the color of one's skin. It says instead, because of your color, we will not judge the content of your character. In short, Steele says, white people are trying to trade low expectations in exchange for their racial forgiveness, innocence. He wrote a book called What Killed Michael Brown. If you remember Michael Brown, he's the one that began the hands up, don't shoot. That turned out to be a complete fabrication of what happened. I don't know if you're still one of those people who thinks that Michael Brown simply put his hands up and got on his knees and the cops shot him just to shoot him. He actually did approach the cop, reach for the cop's gun, struggle with the gun, and he was shot. I'm not sure if that's still what your idea of reality is. If it is, then at this point, we might as well just go our separate ways. Um, but it's, it, it's, his in his book, called What Killed Michael Brown, he debunks the idea that victimization is power. And he says it's very dangerous as he looks around the black culture and says, if it, and, and, he, and he sees the treatment of white people in instances where victimization allegedly occurred. And when it does, it provides an opportunity to empower African-Americans. Almost, it almost allows the stories in these instances, the facts of these instances, to end up being molded in a way that allows for there to be innocence when in fact there is guilt on the part of the, the lawbreaker. It's, we, it's like a way of saying, and this is Shelby Steele, saying we white people will bow to your victimization and give you power. Amazon would not allow his book on their platform. I'm sorry, it's a film. Would not allow his film on their platform. I think it was a book first, then it became a film. They wouldn't allow it. They called it racist. 
They told an African-American man that his expression of this, of his feelings on this topic is racist. That it would cause great discomfort, great offense. Because to hell with the First Amendment. But, I mean, in a sense, they control their platform. So, you know, he has a right to say it, but he doesn't have a right for it to be heard. But just to think that they would not allow his views to be heard on this issue because it would be racist. <clears throat> Preventing an African-American from doing it. Ironically, they do openly discriminate against him. A black man. Because he has a philosophy that blacks must be given opportunities to lift themselves up, but must rise to the challenge and rigor required to better themselves. To give it freely without that effort stunts the growth. It makes the gross growth false. It makes it creates the appearance of growth when in fact it there isn't any. Or as much as it would appear to be. And all of it, he says, is in this desperate mission to gain back their racial innocence, which is a very understandable pursuit. I like to think that I'm being kind and fair to people because I'm kind and fair to people, not because I'm making up for the sins of other white people in the past. I would like to think that were I an African-American, that that was the reason a man who happened to be white was treating me, you know, well, politely, kindly, fairly. Not because he's making up for something that his ancestors did. That's an insult. At least that's the way I see it. Um, so anyway, I highly recommend look, look into Shelby Steele and What Killed Michael Brown and maybe check out that interview on the uh, uh, Ben Shapiro show. It's a Sunday special. I think it was last week. All right, I have one more thing that I want to talk about before I publish this because I want to get it out right away, and that is this. As we approach this election, and we're I look around for signs that might give me an, and I don't mean signs in people's yard. I mean signs that might give me an indication of what people actually expect. Like when near the end of an election, you'll see someone who's supposed to have, be way up in the polls in a given state, but yet they're spending a ton of time and money there still. The fact that they're spending the time and money there tells me that maybe they don't think they're going to win that state. So I'm looking around for signs like that. And one of them that I saw, and I don't know if you think this way too, is uh, I was thinking to myself, in what cities have they begun to build protective walls? around businesses, other structures, in anticipation of post-election violence. Now, I understand there could be violence either way, but the kind of violence I, I, I predict less likely to happen would be a Trump loss and Trump supporters rioting violently, as though there's another way to riot. I doubt that would be the reason to build the walls. This is just my opinion, the sense that I get from Trump support. Now, there's obviously kooks, but I mean enough to that, that you would cover it on the news and be like, oh my God, look at them burning that place, like we saw over and over all summer with Antifa. But those were mostly peaceful protests. I forgot. Those were mostly peaceful. But anyway, 
What cities are building these walls? Or in general, where are they being built? And what does that mean? The other kinds of violence, I, I understand too that there could also be a Biden wins, Biden supporters riot anyway. The way like, you know, when your city when your city wins the Stanley Cup or the Super Bowl, for some reason they're still tipping over cars and burning things in celebration. So that that might end up being part of the reason why they're building the walls, but I, I doubt it. I doubt it. Because those people are generally happy and celebratory. They're, they're a lot easier to control. When are they harder to control? When they've lost. And they've been told that they were cheated. That they lost unfairly. Or just that they think it was fair and that they lost and they're mad that they lost. They're building them in Chicago. Metropolitan, Chicago. Detroit, New York City, Trenton, New Jersey, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. If you were to look at those on a blue-red map, they would be about as blue as the color blue can get. So why are they building, why are they deciding to protect things there? Why, why are they not doing it in Peoria, in Ann Arbor, in White Plains, in Wildwood, in Middletown, Pennsylvania? Typically red areas. I wonder why. Could it be that maybe they think they might lose? I don't know why. Biden is so far ahead. Or is he? We shall soon see. And with that, I will see you tomorrow. I think I will probably have to do another podcast. I'll probably wait. I'll probably do it. On Wednesday sometime. It'll be very hard, though, because I think I'll be watching the faces of MSNBC anchors slide off their heads. So with that, I, again, I thank you for listening. I know I am, have become quite opinionated, and I, I don't apologize for that. But I hope I'm still being polite and open-minded. Some of you might disagree with that, but uh, thank you to... Hayden, a man in a boy's body. And thank you, of course, to my boy Milky. With that, I will see you in a few days.